Well, good evening. Welcome back to uh, the second episode in our Stories to Live By. Uh, this is, I, I like this because I like talking about Jesus, but I also like talking about it in this way because I really do, and the more you think about it, I think the truer you'll see this to be, religiously, not religiously, is that we tend to live our lives or make sense, better way of saying it, we tend to make sense of our lives and make sense of reality by patterning uh, certain stories in our lives. We are narrative people, we're storytelling, story living people, if you will, from the little tapes that are playing in our head to the movies and stories that inspire us or that, about which we pattern our life. So that's what we're talking about, but we wanna pattern our lives after stories that are true stories. And so that's why we're in the Gospel of Luke. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We're grateful, Lord, for the ability to come together in our country and study your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us courage to speak the truth. We pray that you would give us a heart to speak it in love. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, one announcement, by the way, I almost forgot this. Uh, we do uh, Israel trips every year, except for 2021 because COVID intervened. And so uh, we are doing two trips in 2022. We do one the last two weeks of February and we do one the last week of April, first week of May. And so I just wanna let you know there are a few slots, I think, left on each of those. And so if you are interested in doing that, uh, there's a little bit of time to sign up. And if you're interested, you can call the church, Crossings Church, and ask for Joe Travis, and she'll tell you everything you need to do. So just wanted to let you know that, that we do have some, uh, some slots left, which isn't always the case. But since we did two, I think we have room to take a few more people, so. Pardon? If they wanna text me, I can send them the information. Right, so if you text to, which is a nice segue, into uh, this number, which you can text your questions about Israel or about the lesson, you know, pretty much whatever, uh, stocks. Uh, she'll probably tell you anything you want advice on. You can just text her and she'll tell you that. So we're talking about stories to live by. There are certain stories that uh, give you a moral. There are different kinds of stories. Like for example, the story of the tortoise and the hare. You probably remember that. And you remember the moral of that story, slow and steady wins the race. Or an alternate moral to that story is the race doesn't always go to the swiftest. And so you get these little nuggets of wisdom, if you will, uh, truth, which those aren't always true, but the point is, uh, they're trying to give you a little nugget of truth. Some stories, though, are more complicated than that. They don't give you a moral. They draw you into the story, and they leave you thinking about the story. They're not so simple as let a sleeping dog lie or honesty is the best policy. You know, they're a little more complex stories that engage our minds to think things through. I'll give you a great example of a story like this. You may have heard this one before. Uh, it's, it's just a brilliant little story. It was, a, it was a short story at first, but I'm gonna give you a really short story. So once upon a time, there was a king and uh, he had a kingdom, but he had a daughter and no son. And so for his kingdom to go on, he needed his daughter to marry a prince from one of the 
one of the royal or noble families in the kingdom so that he could have a succession in his kingdom when he got older and when he died. And so his daughter came of age, beautiful young girl, but willful. And she didn't want to marry any of the noble young men that he brought before her. And his patience began uh, to run short. And in fact, one day he found out that she had secretly fallen in love with a young man, but he was a commoner. And so of course he talked to her and he appealed to her sense of patriotism and he appealed to her as, her, as his daughter who should do what her father tells him, but nothing uh, availed. She wouldn't give up the young man who had really captured her heart, had no interest in any of the noble young men. And so the king, you know, distressed about the situation, angry about the situation, decided that he would solve it, as harsh as it may be. And so he had the young man arrested. So the young man uh, comes in and he says, well, I'm not going to kill him. I mean, that would forever turn my daughter away from me, but I need to make sure that there's no way that these two get married and perhaps then she, when she realizes it can't happen, perhaps she'll come to her senses. And so he calls all the people together and he puts the young man in the arena. And he has devised a test. And he says there are two doors and behind one of the doors is a tiger. Behind the other door is a beautiful lady whom he had selected. And he said, if you choose the door with the tiger, then you will die immediately. The tiger will kill you. If you choose the door with the lady, you will live, but you must marry her and you may live happily in our kingdom and have a great life. And the father then thought, the king thought that that would keep him from being responsible for the young man's death. Well, needless to say, his daughter was distraught because of the turn of events, but she used her connections in the palace to find out which door had the tiger and which had the lady. But in that process, she found out that the lady was one of her rivals, someone that she hated. And it's as day went after day before the test came, she found she could hardly bear the thought of her beloved being married to this woman but then again, no more could she bear the thought of her beloved being torn to shreds by the tiger. And so the day came and the young man was standing before the two doors and all the people were there. And in his indecision, he looked up to her in the royal box and with a nod, she subtly motioned to the door on the right. And so the young man went up and opened the door. And that's where this story ends. <laughs> this is called The Lady or the Tiger. This is a story that has no simple moral, does it? It draws you in what won out in her heart, her love for her young man or her hatred for her rival. What did he, uh, did he trust her to go to his potential death? Did he open the door that she said? You know, what is everyone's motive in this? And it draws you into the story, doesn't it? It makes you put yourself into the story. Well, that's the kind of story that I want to tell you tonight 
as we go into the Gospel of Luke and we look at Jesus' life. And Jesus, this is not a story that Jesus told, per se. This is an incident in his life, something that happened in his life. And the way Jesus deals with this incident is one that will draw us into this story and make us think about some of the weightier questions uh, as they pertain to us. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. And I want to show you where this whole, I just want to paint the context of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 opens in Capernaum, which is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, still there. Show you a picture in a minute. In fact, let me tell you what happens there. This is the story where Jesus goes into Capernaum and there's a Roman centurion, so he's not Jewish. He may be God-fearing, but he's not Jewish. And he has a servant who's sick. You may remember this story. And he he uh, asks the Jewish leaders to please approach Jesus to see if Jesus would heal his servant. Uh, and so they do, and they say, he built our synagogue. He put the money up to build our synagogue. This man surely deserves any help that you can give him. You may remember Jesus said very well, but... The centurion sent another servant to him as he was coming and said, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy that you would come into my house, but I'm a man under authority and I know that if you say the word, my servant will be healed. And remember Jesus said, I haven't found this great a faith amongst the Jewish people. I haven't found this great a faith in Israel. And so his servant was healed. That's what happened in the beginning of chapter seven. By the way, this is Capernaum today. This, this is the remains of houses. And so you can kind of just see they're about this tall uh, and you can see the, all the houses clustered around the synagogue. This is a gorgeous little ruins of a synagogue. And I didn't put a lot of pictures in here because, oh, we'll go here when we go to Israel, by the way. This is a great site. This synagogue is from the fourth century AD. But you see this, in, uh, that's limestone. Do you see this basalt layer down here, the darker stone? That is the foundation of the first century synagogue. And what happened was 300 years later, you know, it was in disrepair, so they scraped it and they built on the foundation. That centurion paid for that foundation to be laid. And you can still see that today. So we're in the area of Galilee. He's in Capernaum. Then he travels to Nain, a little town, this is like going from, uh, I don't know, maybe like going to Okarchi or something, not a big town, and, uh, but they did have good chicken. So you go to Nain and there he sees a widow who is in a funeral procession with her only son and he has compassion on her and he goes and he touches the, the boy and brings him back to life. I mean, I know you tend to think about Lazarus bringing him back to life, but he's just brings him back to life and gives him back to his mom. Then, still in Luke chapter seven, as he's in this area, John the Baptist is in jail because uh, Herod, one of the Herod boys, put him in jail for daring to criticize him, and he was right. I mean, John the Baptist was right. And John the Baptist sends disciples to say, are you the one? And Jesus said, go tell him what you see. I mean, I just raised a dead a dead boy and the lame walk and the blind see. And then he goes on to say, there's never been a, a man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist and his faith. 
And then we finally get to our passage, and as he's traveling around, a Pharisee invites him to his house to eat. And this little story is very famous, but I wanna look at it maybe from a little bit different perspective. So let me take you to John, or John Luke 7, 36, and we'll jump into this story. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now remember the Pharisees were very observant uh, Jews. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. Uh, if you know any rabbi from this time, they were a Pharisee. I mean, all the great thinkers, and they were very devout. And Jesus uh, did not approve of everything the Pharisees did, but they, they were zealous for the law, at least, and they knew the Bible. So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, and look, he says, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, dining, at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this Pharisee's name is Simon, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him because she is a sinner. So I wanna move on pretty quickly and show you this scene a little bit, but you already get a little bit of a hint as to why did Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus to his house? Because Jesus uh, wasn't on the you know, rubber chicken circuit, you know, he wasn't on the banquet circuit, the speaking circuit, he was just out and about amongst the people, right? You kind of get an idea that Simon wants to see, I hear this guy's a prophet, I hear he's healed people, and I wanna check this guy out and see is he really a prophet. Well, his first judgment is, if he were really a prophet, he wouldn't let this sinful woman touch him. This is what this probably looked like. I mean, this is a painting, but you're gonna see so many paintings of this, but I wanted you to show you what it probably actually looks at like. The ESV translation, which I just showed you, said he was reclining at table because in those days, that's how you ate your meals. It was a low table. You would recline on your left arm and eat with your right. You didn't fill a plate. You didn't have knife and fork. You're like, how do you use your knife and fork? Yeah, they didn't. And so instead, you would just get some bread, tear it, dip it, eat it. It was unhygienic as all get out. I mean, if COVID had happened then, oh, we wouldn't be here. So, I mean, they would just dip and eat and dip and eat, you know, that kind of a thing. But they would be reclining on their left side. And it, this is obviously a lot later, but it would look something like that. The reason I tell you that is because American audiences have a hard time visualizing how in the world and what in the world is going on with this woman touching his feet. Well, that is not that in the way. You know, it's not like she's under the table, you know, and he's at the table. So he's reclining and everybody's heads are together and everybody's feet are out here. The servants would have been standing around the outside of the room. If it was a courtyard like this, which it undoubtedly was, they didn't do big banquet halls. They did more outdoor kind of things. It was not unusual for people to wander in. And so it wouldn't have been that unusual for her to be there. And it wasn't even 
obvious to everybody that she's down here weeping or you know, anointing his feet. And so I wanted you to kind of get an idea of what this actually looks like and that this story is not strange. Sounds strange to us, not so strange at the time. Now it's a little strange and unusual for her to be weeping, wiping her feet with her, his hair and anointing his feet with oil. But the other guests could have thought, oh, maybe she's a servant, maybe Simon wanted to anoint him with oil. I mean, it, it's not as weird as it sounds, okay? It's really very relatively normal. And so, one point I wanna make here though, kind of a little bit of a sideline, is you tend to think, we get these weird ideas about Jesus, real one-dimensional, I call them caricatures. You know how what a caricature is when you draw a picture of somebody and you take their most pronounced feature and you make it way more pronounced? You know, with Donald Trump, it was the aircraft carrier hairdo. You know, with other people, it's big ears. With Barack Obama, it was big ears. You know, when they would caricature them in the press, you know, that's what they would do. And so we caricature Jesus sometimes. And sometimes we caricature Jesus by saying, oh, he hung out with the poor people. Well, he did, but he also hung out with the rich people. He hung out with the, the downtrodden, the victims. If you mean sinners, yes, he hung out with the sinners and he also hung out with the Pharisees. Here he is at the Pharisee's house, for example. But here's a, in Luke chapter five, he calls one of his disciples whose name is Matthew, his Jewish name is Levi. And Jesus went out and saw a tax collector, not a good guy, named Levi, Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed him. And Matthew made him a great feast in his house. Wow, so Matthew's a rich guy. Yes, he is. Why? Because he's a tax collector. Was that a good paying job? No, but you could extort people. Matthew's not a good guy. Matthew's a sinner and a tax collector, but he's wealthy. And so Jesus says, hey, get your buddies and let's have dinner. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. There's another caricature of Jesus is that he, you know, he thought these poor people, these sinners, these tax collectors were the really good people. No, he thought they were sinners. He thought they were doomed, but he thought they were sick and they needed a physician. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repent, to change their ways. For God so loved the world, he came to bring people to him. So the only point I wanna make in that little sideline is, here you see him eating with Pharisees, the most, quote, righteous of the bunch, and here you see him eating with tax collectors, the richest, but really despised people. And you will see him eating with just common people who aren't rich and who aren't righteous, etc. So I don't want us to caricature Jesus and put a one-dimensional spin on him, but Jesus was here wherever there were people who were lost, rich, poor, Pharisees, you know, secular, whatever it may be, that's where Jesus went. Question? Yes. Do we know what the Pharisees' motives were for having Jesus for dinner? That's a good question. And you know, on the handouts, uh, I put discussion questions. Why do I do that? We never talk about them. No, we don't. But there are people around the country who are, uh, use these lessons, uh, which is 
by God's grace, not my skill. But they use these lessons for small group material. So they'll do it and then they'll wanna discuss it. And so I put some questions. So I can't really answer that because that's one of the discussion questions and that would be cheating, I'm sorry. Well, you get a hint, don't you, at the very beginning, and that is he wanted to check him out, but he seems to have a negative attitude towards Jesus to start with. And it may be that if you've read Luke up to this point, you realize that the Pharisees down in Jerusalem, and that's not where we are, remember we're up in Galilee, but the Pharisees, the official headquarters group, have already decided this guy's a problem. He's not gonna come around and we need to do something about him. And it may be that Simon is kind of the president of the Galilee chapter of legalists, you know, of Pharisees, and says, I wanna get this guy in and I'll make a report to headquarters. There are any number of reasons, but let me just put it this way. Love for Jesus and a desire to follow his message is probably not the reason to invite him to dinner. But let's wait till the end of the story though. You never know what Jesus can do. Knowing that, by the way, Jesus went anyway, didn't he? That's another thing. Jesus didn't just hang around with people that wanted him, he hung around with people that didn't like him very well either because they're lost. You know, remember what he said. He said, if you like the people that like you, even the secular people do that. He said, you've gotta go to the lost wherever they are and whoever they are. So back to our story. Oh, I'm sorry, one more. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees were grumbling, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is, I put this in here because back on the other topic, who did Jesus hang out with? You remember the story of the prodigal son? Okay, well it's part of a, it's a trilogy of parables. There are three parables all together and it's the lost uh, sheep, the lost coin, and the lost kid. That's, those are those three parables. And this is why he told them those parables. The tax collectors were saying to him, this is later in Luke 15, later in his ministry, saying this man talks to sinners and he eats with them. And so he told them this parable. If you had 100 sheep and one of them was lost, don't you leave the 99 and go after the one that's lost? And when he found it, he rejoices, he comes and calls his friends and says, rejoice with me, I've lost my sheep. Just so I tell you there'll be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent, who are on the right track. Or what if a woman who had 10 silver coins loses one? Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently uh, search for it until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then he gets into trouble. That's not bad. What is he saying is, is that in God's eyes, this person who is a sinner, if indeed they repent, then there's joy in heaven. The third one though, he kind of turns his attention to this. This is what the prodigal son is actually about. I mean, it's a great parable for a lot of readers, but this is what the prodigal son was told well, you got this sinner and he goes away, you know the story, and squanders the inheritance, comes back, dad rushes out, hugs him and said, oh my goodness, my son who was dead is now alive. This is a sinner who has repented. You remember in the story, he wakes up one day and he said, it came to his senses, is what the parable says, turned around, that's repentance, turned around and went a different direction. He went back home. 
okay, so everything's going well. And they go, yeah, you already told us that. We got it, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost boy. And Jesus goes, yeah, but I've got one other thing to tell you. Remember the older brother? He did not like his younger brother because he thought he was worthless. Yeah, he was. And he wasn't gonna take him back. Even though he was dead and now he's alive, the older brother didn't wanna take him back. And uh, he said, and he leaves it hanging, he said it, but the father said to the older son, everything I have is yours. These are Pharisees who think they're in good graces with God. They said, everything I have is yours, but my son was dead and now he's alive. That made the Pharisees so angry. They don't have any heartburn with a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. It's like, yeah, well, we have a difference of opinion here, okay? I don't think they're worthwhile. You seem to think God thinks they are worthwhile. But then Jesus turns it to them and say, you are the older brother. You are the mean-spirited, stingy one that doesn't love these people. Then they definitely decided they were gonna kill him, okay? So Jesus hung out with a lot of people. So back to Simon. So Simon, if you remember, looks and just says, if he knew who was touching him, he, if he were a prophet, he wouldn't let that woman touch him. So Jesus speaks up, kind of knowing what's on his mind. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. Now he tells a little story inside this event. He said, there was a certain money lender and he had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's like two years wages. The other 50, two months wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon says, Simon suspects a trap, because in the Greek it says, I suppose, well it doesn't say it with that tone of voice, but you know what I mean, it's kinda, I suppose, the one whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. Now he's gotta be wondering, what is the point of this story out of the blue in the middle of nowhere? Like, okay, does he do this a lot? Does he just tell you these stories, uh, hypotheticals like this? And so he did. And so Jesus tells this parable, knowing what Simon is thinking, knowing what's happening, the rest of the people, think about it, if you're at this feast, you do not have any idea what's going on. Simon didn't say that, Simon thought that. And so you're just around here going, something's going, you ever had that feeling when you were in a social gathering where everybody's talking and it's all going over here? I have that all the time, I don't know why you guys don't. Anyway, it happens to me all the time. Like, Something's going on and I don't know what's happening. Well, that's kind of what they thought. And so then Jesus sets this up with this story to make a foundation because he's gonna apply it to what's happening. He wants to hit the, the natural human idea of proportionality. I mean, honestly, which one of them will love him more? You don't know which one's gonna love him more. I mean, two different people, they could react in any number of ways. I mean, never, ever underestimate people's lack of gratitude. I mean, I just think you will never go wrong if you never, ever expect too much of gratitude from people. So how would you know that? Well, Simon doesn't know that, but he said, well, the one who's been forgiven more ought to love him more, don't you think? Because we have this inbred sense of, of proportionality. When people are punished, we want proportionality, right? And when people are rewarded, we want proportionality. It's kind of hardwired into us. And Jesus taps into that sense of proportionality. 
And then he says, he addresses the, quote, elephant in the room. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, smack on the cheek, you know, just the usual uh, Middle Eastern way of welcoming people. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And so, this is a brilliant application. He takes our sense of proportionality and then he contrasts Simon, the righteous, woman who is a sinner, and he contrasts those two. And what happens when, I mean, when you read this, you know what happens? Cognitive dissonance. I mean, you have a sense of not rightness about this. Not, I'm not saying not rightness about Simon. You can have whatever personal opinion of Simon that you want, but it's really not about Simon at this point. He's just saying, which one of those loved the money lender more when he canceled his debt? Well, the one that had the huge, huge, huge debt. You've judged rightly, Simon. Now look at her. She's low, you're high. She's overdoing it on the hospitality and it isn't even her house and you did nothing and it is your house. And so we want a sense of proportionality and now Jesus turns and goes, this is way out of proportion. I mean, it feels so wrong, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus is doing. I wanna translate this more literally for you though. I want you to get a sense of how this came across. In, in the Greek language of this is very graphic and it unbelievably highlights. So I wanna translate this really literally without being smoothed out. Jesus answered, you have judged correctly. Then, turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. Water for my feet you did not provide but she with her tears made my feet wet and with her hair wiped them. A kiss you did not give me, but she from the moment I came in has not stopped kissing my feet. With olive oil you did not anoint my head, but she with perfume anointed my feet. With this in mind, Simon, I tell you, her sins, her many sins, Jesus doesn't disagree with the fact that this woman is a sinner, have been and are forgiven, so she loved much. But the person to whom little is forgiven loves little. So you really get a sense, translating it that way of the contrast, you know, with water you did not, but she with her tears. With Olive oil you did not, but she with expensive perfume. It's, it's just hits you in the face, you know, when you read it, that he's setting up this contrast that should not be. She doesn't have good manners. He's a rich guy, he does have good manners. He's righteous, he should do the right thing. She's a sinner. Who expects her to do all the right things? 
Does that make sense? You see this sense of not rightness about it. And yet it's clear that Simon doesn't care much for Jesus and she is crazy about Jesus. I mean, she has got a lot. So what is coming through out of this, the emphasis on this? And here is the point he's trying to make. The point he wants to make is that the love for God is a consequence of your sense of forgiveness. What he's not saying, and this is a little obscured in the English translations, and they're not wrong, because uh, the way they translate that word is normal, but if you read any, any commentary, you'll realize that the context is, it doesn't say her sins are forgiven because she loved much, meaning she loved Jesus first and then her sins are forgiven. That's not consistent with anything in the Bible whatsoever. And in fact, she's doing all this to her feet. Why in the world is she crying? She's crying because she's been forgiven. This woman has heard Jesus before. This woman is following Jesus. She's stalking Jesus. I mean, she knows where he's going to be. She has heard the good news about being reconciled to God. And she is... If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, she is completely broken in spirit. And I don't mean broken as in she can't function or there's something wrong with her, I just mean she has a deep recognition of her sins. Jesus says she's a great sinner. Simon says she's a great sinner. Everybody says, and the point is that she has a deep sense of that. And so here she is, coming to the man who has taken that away, who has shown her a way to be reconciled, that you are not so far gone, regardless of what Simon and his buddies say, that you can't turn back to God. That's what Jesus was preaching, by the way. Jesus wasn't preaching, have you know, your best life now. I mean, Jesus was preaching, repent, change your ways, because the kingdom of God is here and they realized, I can repent, I could be in the kingdom of God, not, surely not me. This is what happens when you and I and she realize that the weight of our sin is gone, that we too can be in the kingdom of God. This is one of the most beautiful pictures in the scriptures. He said, her many sins have been forgiven, so she loves much. That's why he told, this is parallel with the money lender, right? The money lender story didn't say, the one who owed him a bunch, oh, he loved that money lender a lot better. Mowed his yard every Saturday, you know, did all that. So he forgave it. No, the whole point is he forgave them both. And the one with the most, uh, you know, that had the biggest debt repaid, well, seems like he'd probably love him more. That's why Simon barely treats Jesus in a civil manner. And this woman is just broken and grateful beyond belief to humiliate herself. I mean, what's more humiliating? She's already known as the biggest sinner in town. And so she comes in and she's perfectly willing to humble herself to be grateful to Jesus. That's the picture of a repentant sinner. That's what the gospel does to people when you realize the weight of your sin is gone. But here's the interesting point that he makes. The person to whom little is forgiven loves little. 
That's very interesting. Now, he's obviously talking about Simon, isn't he? Like, you didn't show me a lot of love when I came into your house. Well, that's true. And Jesus says, you, he says one of two things here. Either you're a pretty righteous guy. You've been following the law of Moses pretty well. And you don't have as many sins as she has. So you're like the guy that only got forgiven two months wages. And you know, as a consequence, you don't love very much because you don't think you've been forgiven very much. You don't understand the weight of your sins. Oh, they're not as weighty as hers, but you don't understand the weight of your sins. Or he's saying, you don't realize that in God's eyes, she may have sinned more, but both of you stand in judgment. She just happens to realize the weight that's been lifted off her shoulders. You have yet to realize that. So you see how, that, how he uses that sense of proportionality and then he puts the contrast and you have to ask yourself, why is he saying this? I mean, that's the really brilliant part of this. Okay, everything so far has been average Jesus. Okay, here's brilliant Jesus. Who do you think he's after in this story? The woman's already repented. She's been forgiven. Who are the lost people here? Simon. Is he a nice guy? No, he's a grade A jerk. Jesus knows this, and yet Jesus is eating at his house, right? Why? Because Simon is lost. Simon just doesn't know that he's lost. Simon has some self-righteousness. He doesn't realize that he's lost. Now, I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. He could have said to the woman outside and said, I see, child, that you've repented, you know, your sins are forgiven, welcome into the kingdom. And she's like, I'll follow you forever. That's what everybody did. It's like, I'm following you, I'm with you. You have my whole life. That's what you and I have did too. We did the exact same thing. Yep, I'm with you, my whole life, it's yours. That's what they did. He didn't have to go to Simon's. Why would he go? The question was asked, and it's a very good question. Why did Simon have him over? I'll tell you a better question. Why did Jesus go? Isn't that interesting? Who do you think he's after by telling him this story? He could have just finished his food and said, well, I got another appointment, sorry about that, gotta run, hate to eat and run, but I'm out of here. Uh, don't bother to see me out since you didn't bother to even give me oil, you know, wash my feet when I came in, so no hurry, and I'm out of here. He could have done that. But instead, he engages Simon, why? Because he came to seek and save the lost. And the lost sheep don't always smell good. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Anybody ever been around sheep? Yeah, they stink. I mean, they are, man, they're dumb. And man, they're unhygienic. And my point is that that's what sin is like on people. And she was a great sinner, but so was he. She has been saved, he has not. That's why Jesus is engaging in this. He's not trying to slam Simon. I mean, it's the God of the universe. He doesn't need to bully people and say, Simon, I just wanna make you feel bad now. That's not the way Jesus works. Well, that's just bullying. What's he saying? He's saying, Simon, think about this. Think about it. That's why he draws him into it. This is another uh, story. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. This is later in Luke. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Man, this could be Simon. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So he picks the the top and the bottom again. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
Is this how you guys pray in the morning? I thank you I'm not a sinner like all the other people I know. And then list them off, of course, because you gotta pray for them. But uh, I thank you that uh, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that guy over there, the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's true. And the Pharisees did follow the law of Moses way better than the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the point? The point of this is, is you don't have, it isn't about your socioeconomic status, it isn't about your religious status, it's all about everybody has a sin, this is the gospel. Everybody has a sin problem, and it's, a terminal condition. And Jesus made a way to be completely healed forever and live forever, to take that burden of sin off your shoulders. And the, the great leveler of humanity is sin, is our own load of sin. The only difference between Simon and that woman, other than the number of their sins, and nobody's doubting that she was a bigger sinner than he was in this, in this uh, circumstance, the problem is, though, that he didn't think he had any sin. He didn't think he had a need for God. He had no poverty of spirit at all. Jesus is telling him this because Jesus wants him to think about it. Jesus wants him to repent, wants him to see the way. And so, after uh, he said that to Simon, he turns to her and said, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves. Now, this was not necessary. Remember, I read to you, her sins were and are forgiven. That's what Jesus had already said. So he doesn't need to forgive them again. Why is he doing this? This is an in-your-face statement. This is like, Simon, I really want you to think about the sense of proportionality. I really want you to look at that, and I want you to look inside your own heart, and you tell me, who's really right before God? The woman who has repented of her sins or you who don't think you need to? And then just to point out that, by the way, Simon, you should pay attention to me. That's why he says this. Oh, and by the way, that's why they decide to kill him because they know what he's doing when he says this. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because you know the only person that can forgive sins? God is the only person that can forgive sins. And if you're a Pharisee and you hear this, you know what that means? Capital crime, that's blasphemy. And by the way, from this point on, they attempt to try to kill Jesus for blasphemy. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And so there's a truth in that. He's confirming something that's already happened and that is your sins are forgiven because you've repented and turned toward God. And you can go in peace because peace is the result of having the weight lifted off your shoulders and your sins forgiven. And there's nothing special. You, clearly, you don't act really good and then Jesus decides it, your merit, that all you do is come to Jesus with our need. And that's the point that he's trying to make to Simon. So, a couple of ideas here. And I want you to think about this because that's the end of the story. There's, so there's no moral of the story. It's like, Simon, you're an idiot. Look in the mirror, you're a big old sinner. 
Or Simon, you're a hard-hearted guy, you're a sinner. Simon, your score of self-awareness on the emotional quotient test is very low. You do not realize how bad you are. Now, there's no moral to the story. What's he do? He leaves it hanging with Simon to think about the money lender, then think about what he just saw with this woman, and maybe it clicks and he goes, you know what? He has a point. I don't like who I am in this story. You know, he's thinking about the story of the money lenders and he thinks to himself, I think I'm the guy who wasn't very grateful in the story. And so Jesus is trying to draw him into the story and get him to think. Love for God is a consequence of our sense of forgiveness. So let's come to us and say, what are we taking out of this story? Well, one thing is, is that Jesus is teaching here is that you and I don't love God so we can be forgiven. We are forgiven by grace through faith, by grace through placing our trust in Christ, by, I'm just using a bunch of synonyms, by placing, you know, surrendering our lives to Christ, by denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Christ. These are all ways that the Bible talks about being saved, okay, of basically uh, having your sins forgiven. Our love for God is a consequence of the sense of forgiveness. And here's the point I wanna make, and I'm not trying to make this like a wag my finger at you point. This, I'm teaching this to me and you. If we have difficulty loving God, having a sense of loving God, one of two things is happening, okay? One, we think love is an emotion, and that's not true. Love is more than an emotion, far more than an emotion. So if you think love is an emotional state and you don't feel that emotional state to God, then we have a problem because we just don't understand what love is. But more common amongst Christians who are having a hard time loving God, I think is this, we have lost the sense of what we've been forgiven. We have lost that sense of the weight of our sin that's been forgiven. I'll tell you what I think every day, and this just happens to be my particular story, is I think of, uh, obviously sins being forgiven, but I think, I can think back in my life and think of how many times God spared me. Uh, from the times when I was a redneck in Kentucky, in high school, driving way too fast, on little country roads, should have been dead. You, everybody's got stories. Well, maybe you don't have that story, but you've got stories where if you mine your past, you go, that should not have turned out as well as it did. Uh, and I'm not saying you're alive and you thought you are gonna be dead, but just mine your past a little bit and you will see the hand of God and he has spared us from most of our sin and foolishness. Most of the consequences are sin and foolishness. And there's a great sense of weight being lifted and gratitude. I really think for most Christians, when we're having a hard time having a zealous love for God, it's because we just need to remember what we have been forgiven. He who has been forgiven little loves little. And we know we've been forgiven a lot, but we don't have much of a sense of that. And I would urge you to have a sense of that. I don't mean it in a penance, guilt kind of way. I think that's why 1 John 1, 8 says, if we're faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Why do we confess our sins? People ask us all the time, why do we confess our sins if God knows everything? Great question. Maybe it's not to inform him, right? Maybe the reason 
is to let go of those sins, to acknowledge it. And one of the best things that comes from uh, acknowledging your sins to God daily is this deep sense of, wow, I had no idea, or I had forgotten just how much you love me that you forgive me these sins. Does that make sense? It's not a guilt thing. It's gonna, it's gonna make us love God more because we appreciate what God has done. And as a corollary of this, love for others is a consequence of the realization of my sins and their forgiveness. This one's a little harder, but I want you to stay with it. That's why love God, love others. I hate that phrase. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's why those two things go together. You cannot love, your neighbor is like sheep. Your neighbor stinks sometimes. But my point is, is people aren't inherently lovable. And you can try really hard, but you're gonna be up and down. I mean, no offense, but think how hard it is to live with your spouse. And that's somebody you're committed to. How about the people you're not that committed to? You can't do this on your own. But the way to open your heart and let the Spirit do that is to remember in the realization, not of their need, that's called noblesse oblige. In other words, oh, they're poor sinners. I'm gonna ride in on a white horse and save them. You know, no, that's not love for others. That's not what you're called for. You're not the savior of the world, nor am I. The reason that we can love other people is when we realize, I just got forgiven two years. Let's go back to our Jesus parable. I've forgiven two years worth of debt. I'm debt free. Oh, you're not debt free. Well, I got time. I don't have any debts. I'm gonna help you. Why? because of what God did for me. You can't love humanity. That's why secular ideas about loving your brother don't work out very well. I mean, politically speaking, dip one toe, then I'm out, okay? Politically speaking, typically the people that are talking the most about loving the poor downtrodden people will end up ruling them. Why? because you can't make yourself love people. Christians can love your neighbor, and that is because, not because we're better people, forget that, it's because we have a deep sense of how much we have been forgiven. Our love for God and our love for others is a consequence of that deep awareness and that freedom that comes with having our burden of sin lifted. Then my final point here is, and this is where you take this home and you think about it is, who are you in this story? I mean, it's kind of like the lady and the tiger. You can kind of put yourself in different people's shoes. Like, if I were the lady, what would I have done? If I were the young man, what would I do? If I were the king, was that the way I would deal with my daughter? Are we gonna have irreconcilable differences forever? Will she ever invite me over for Christmas? Will I see my grandkids? I mean, you can put yourself in the position of everybody in the story. This is a great story to put yourself in the position of everybody there. And when you read the Bible, I would encourage you to do that. What if you were one of the other people at the table and you heard this and you saw it? What would you think? Yeah, I have to admit, that's Simon. He's not very hospitable, you know? He didn't wash my feet either when I came in. I mean, what would you think if you were that person? What would you think if you were the woman? What would you think if you were Simon? And then ask yourself, who am I? 
Because that's what the prodigal son was about. It was pointing it out to them saying, I'm gonna show you a picture and if you guys haven't figured it out yet, you're the older brother. Oh, we figured it out and we're really ticked off. But he's, he's holding up a mirror, if you will, to us in this story and say, who are you? Are we broken and grateful because of the weight of our sin is gone or are we self-righteous and either I've had very little sin to be forgiven or I don't think I have any to be forgiven. Who are we in this story? And I think that's the beauty of this story is that Jesus pulls us in, he draws us in. And so this is a story to live by in this sense. It doesn't have a nice little moral. It confronts you with some cognitive dissonance. In other words, great. Before I knew this story, I was happy in my self-righteousness. Now that I know this story, I've got to deal with this. Do you have that feeling? Okay, then my work here is done. That's all we're trying to do. Is get, and that's what Jesus is doing. Why? Because he, he actually loves Simon. And I mean loves him, not in the sense he thinks he's a nice guy. He's not. Not in the sense he thinks he's as hot as he thinks he is, because he's not. In the sense that he's lost and he doesn't know it. And Jesus has great compassion for him because he's lost. And that's why Jesus is engaging him. And now that Simon has seen this, he can't unsee it. He can't unknow it. And he's somehow got to make sense of this. And that's what this story, and a lot of stories like that do for us. Now I've got to say, well, who am I in this story? And now I've got to make sense of this story. That's good for us because we can repent. What if you wake up tomorrow morning and your wife says to you, honey, I've been thinking about who I was in that story. Uh-huh. I don't really know, but I figured out who you are. <laughs> so Simon, would you get me a cup of coffee this morning? You know, I mean, that's how this could go, okay? And so, but my point is, is that we have to get into this and now it's like a mirror's been held up. But it's a kindly mirror from a kindly savior who isn't here to beat us over the head or accuse us. He's simply here to saying, if you see yourself as Simon in this, if you see Simon in yourself, then let that, let that be a sign to you that you need to turn to me and let these sins go away. That makes sense? Wrestle with that a little bit this week and, and just honestly look into the mirror that Jesus held up. And in the end, we will probably be like that woman and have a load of sin that we took for granted lifted off our shoulders. God bless you. I'll see you guys next week.